Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second episode of the second series of the Make You Known podcast. Today we are talking to the author of a book that goes from Martin Luther to gangster within a heartbeat. It goes from the comic to the profound within a couple of sentences. And perhaps most importantly, it expresses an undying hatred for the Comic Sans font. That's right. Today we have a doctor in the house, not only a junior doctor, but also the author of a book called Abide. Uh, and his name is Dr. Joel Kazero. Joel, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, yeah, good to have you with us. Happy to be here. Um, so thanks for calling out the whole Comic Sans thing as well. It's been on my heart for a long time. Um, you know, maybe we should start a movement. Um, Christians Against Comic Sans or CACs for short or something. <laughs> That's great. I, a, a short story. I used to be a teacher. We'll get into this a little bit later. But I remember someone started a, um, like a professional development series. Like we're looking at abuse and we're looking at like physical and all these types of abuse. And I just couldn't shake the fact that this person was using comic sans in his presentation. I was like, I don't understand what you're trying to convey with this message and the font. It was so jarring. I just will never forget that. And that started my campaign against Comic Sans MS. It's very difficult to take it seriously, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anything written in Comic Sans. Um, so aside from that, like, first of all, um, why, why write a book? You know, you're, you're, you're working as a doctor. Um, you've got a family. You've got you're involved in church and extracurricular church activities. You're, you're obviously a busy guy. Um, what made you sort of put aside? Because writing a book is a massive task, right? And then off the back of that, why write it? Why call it abide? And what even does that word mean? Yeah, and I guess a little bit of my story will be helpful. So for me, um, I became a Christian when I was a teenager. I was raised in a very nominal Christian family <clears throat> and then met this woman called Pat and she kind of changed my life she was she was like much older she wasn't like the young cool hipster youth pastors that kind of wear Nikes and you know are down listen Kanye West or whatever no she like read a lot of Steve Chalk and she went to General Synod and all this kind of malarkey and she was just really normal like she's the first person that ever kind of sat down talk to me about life. She invited me around her house. I'd never seen people eat around the dinner table during the week. My dad was usually away a lot. He was a, he's a surgeon, so he was off and working. My mom was always running around after us. Uh, and so she was the first person that showed me what family uh, kind of really looked like. Resultantly, I became uh, a Christian. She took me to Spring Harvest, which changed my life completely. And then she actually died um, five years ago, five or six years ago. And uh, basically, from the time I was 15, I'm 32 now, <clears throat> from the time I was about 15, 16, became a young youth leader in my youth, local youth group. Then from there, went to uni, did a lot of work with young adults, and basically been doing that as a lay person for the last 16, 17 years. 
Abide came from watching thousands and knowing thousands of young people, some which deepened in their faith and some which went further in Jesus and, and became mature, beautiful, godly Christian disciples and seeing a almost an equal measure, some maybe even more so, walk away from faith. Um, and I basically was like, what is it? what is it that separates those that go deep to those that walk away? And that's where abide came from. I realized there are features and there are aspects to those young people that decided to, to walk with God. And there are features and aspects to those young people that decided to walk away um, where, you know, parable of the sower where <clears throat> thorns and thistles choke out uh, the word or where other things just distract them and, and and something like that. And I basically constantly like put it all into um, a book, a book that took me years to write this, you know, this book is three, four years in the making. It wasn't, there was no deadlines. There was nothing. It was just a, a, a stream of thought. Um, and it basically centered around this theme of sitting or an attitude of just realizing Jesus is your first priority and the choices that came out of that. Um, and that's where the book came from. So it's those patterns which you saw, which mark the people who actually stayed and grew that you thought, let's kind of put in a template, a guide for those to help others not walk away and, and not fall away. Yeah. In essence, basic features of the Christian life that that's it. Um, there's nothing fancy about, um, there's no, I don't think you've, you've read the book. There's nothing in there that I think is controversial. There's nothing in there that is, should be foreign. Uh, but certainly it's a summary of things that you see or things that people that want to go deeper in their faith should learn to develop, I think. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I got the sense when I was reading it and I thought, is this fair to say that this would be a great book to give someone who's, um, sort of quite recently become a Christian and is looking for like those first steps and, and where to go. And I think it sets out those kind of core tenets really well. Um, yeah, thank you. So, and so the word abide, what, what does that mean? Is it, to, is it to live in? Is it to sit? What You said something about sit in, uh, is that correct? Yeah, I, I, it's the posture. Again, First John is the book that this book is based off. It's short. I think it's six chapters long. It's really easy to read, really easy to understand, but kind of outlines the general attitude that I believe people that have just come into faith or want to go deeper in their faith need to have. And the attitude is one of abiding or sitting in. Uh, you could think of it as being a seed planted in soil. You are that seed and, and Jesus is that soil. And what it means to actually sit in him. It's comfortable. It's warm. It's not easy um, sometimes. It's certain, you know, Jesus calls himself, uh, I'm the narrow way. Like it's not easy sometimes to be a disciple, but certainly it's what you were made to do. It's where you were made to thrive. And so I wanted to have a, a word that, you know, John uses it so many times. And I think it's perfect because it kind of summarizes how you should approach the Christian life. You shouldn't approach it with force and 
oh, like um, tight with a tight-fisted nature. Neither should you approach it as blasé. Neither should you approach it as um, kind of oh, I'm going to take Jesus and I'm going to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. No, no, no. Jesus is everything to you, and and growing in Jesus is just understanding that you are found in Him, that you grow in Him, that you make your choices in light of Him. He is that He is the lenses by which you see the world that's really good um yeah and and like off the back of that just as you're saying that what would you say are there any kind of challenges at the moment or in the current day and age that are particularly prevalent that would stop us from abiding uh, that's a great question um and i think it's been summarized so well with book recent books that have come out um that are massive in the christian uh world so you've got the ruthless elimination of hurry you've got gentle and lonely you've got henry now and spiritual direction which is a bit of an oldie uh, and basically what the what john mark comer you know what dane ortland what all these people are trying to get at john ortberg what they're all trying to get at is that the modern world wants your attention you know there's this amazing netflix uh, documentary called uh, The Social Dilemma. And it basically, if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's it's awesome. And it basically is like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of the Snapchat, all of the TikTok now. The reason these social media platforms are so effective is because they managed to get your attention. They managed to essentially to distract you. Um, couple that with the iPhone, couple that um, with Netflix. And essentially, you now live in a world where you take in more information than you ever have before, but are way more distracted than you ever have been before. And so what these Christian writers are trying to say is they're trying to say, the reason you're not growing, the reason you're so anxious, the reason the world you seem so busy all the time, the reason your friendships are superficial, the reason God seems silent to you is because you haven't given him any time. You, 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 you're distracted. You're not focused. And it's not, it's not trying, they're not trying to be harsh, I don't think. They're just trying to say to claw back your relationship with God, you need to make a radical decision to stop. You need to stop. Just, just, just stop. Block out Netflix, block out whatever for however many minutes you can do that. You know, if it's five minutes, amazing. If it's 10, if it's an hour, if it's a day, whatever. And then when you stop and you take some time to think and take some time to reflect or to meditate on, on what, on godly things, on what God has done, on your, on your feelings, on your day, to, to, to bounce around ideas in your head and actually stop and think, therein will God start to speak to you. Um, and so that is, again, exact. Uh, abide comes on the heels of that. Uh, and so I am fully believing that if um, we learn to do that, if we learn to block out some of the noise we get so much, which is what the world, you know, our world is noisy. If there's a, if there's the great um, problem, it's noise. And so the great discipleship feature is learning how to control the noise in your life.
Yeah, that's so. I think that's so true, and um, and I believe there is a chapter in there in the book on rhythms and and uh, which addresses that, um, which we might get to a bit later. Um, yeah. But one of the things I liked in the introduction of the book is you spent a bit of time to talk about how how to read the book, and um, when I looked at that, I thought actually this is a really good um, idea for actually just basically reading any book um, of this nature, whereby we don't just kind of smash through it in a couple of hours and walk away and go, okay, what am I going to read next? But you, you have this kind of process, don't you? Could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And so I didn't want to make a book that was divorced from the Bible. Uh, I think your greatest book for a Christian, your greatest resource is always going to be the Bible and the spirit working together. Neither did I want to make a book that just parroted the Bible. It's just, you know, I wanted to make a book that was culturally uh, relevant while also being firmly grounded in scripture. I think when you get those two together, um, that really works. Combine that with a world in which noise, 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 noise is always your surrounding you. I thought uh, I went into my teacher mode and um, I thought, OK, I need to make this really explicit um, because I'm assuming the average person that reads my book is going to either read it really quickly because it's not very long. Did you find the book long? No, that's what I liked about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't want to make it very long. And I knew, you know, I even say in the book, you can read this in four hours if you want, but you know, um, that's not the point. The point is to to actually then chew on the things that you've read. So I often think you can read up to half a chapter, a chapter a day, and then spend the rest of your day just chewing that through. So I kind of made a decision to go, okay, what's the best way someone will get the most out of it? And me and my editor, Claire, talked about this. She was like, you're being too prescriptive here. You, you might narrow the... And I'm like, nah, I think you kind of need to be like that in the modern world. And so I thought, okay, cool, fine. Read a chapter a day, read some of First John, think about that for the rest of the day, share it with someone, journal about it. And it's those three steps, read some Bible, read the chapter of the book, think, period. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good um, way to approach reading almost any book. As I say, like, I think also what you said about, um, you know, take the good stuff and chuck away the bad stuff. I think that's a really cool um, approach as well. Like, I'm not sure many authors would have the humility to say that. They'd be like, oh, you know, you must hang on to every word I see. Um, so, no, that's cool. Um, another thing that um, comes up in the book um, now and again is this difference between religion and the way of Jesus, which is something that's really close to my heart as well. I feel like there's a lot of misconception um, in the world generally about what Christianity is and what it isn't. Um, and I also think within Christianity, I've really been affected by this divide actually where where it seems like there's a kind of subtlety there where religion can, well, the way of Jesus can become religion almost without people noticing and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just going to have a look um, to find a quote that I thought was particularly good. Um, it was on, I think it's on page 88, you talk about it. Well, I love that sentence for a start, which is just caught my eye. Sin is not breaking God's commands, it's breaking God's heart. And I think that touches actually on it as well, that whole topic. Um, 
if I can find it. Oh, well, the quote's actually probably too too big to read it all, but um, you, you talk about the main conception about God as Father creeps in. Too many of us believe God is harsh. The stereotype goes like this. God's not fun. He's not understanding. He's sparingly merciful and ultimately unkind. If God would ease up on the commands, get to know us and what life's like down here, then we would be fine. But as it stands, he's too harsh, too stiff, too violent for our taste. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know, why must you always think X? Why can't you start behaving like Y? Um, yeah, and then and then you basically move on to describe about how religious people recognise that they are unholy and that God is the perfect embodiment of holiness, but they kind of live in that place of hand caught in the cookie jar. They feel guilty and condemned and just are never good enough. And um, but this is not what Christianity is about, right? And could you just take it from there a little bit? I think. We live in a, I was watching another uh, documentary last night that's saying the Church of England now, 22% of churches in the Church of England have less than 10 people. And I was like, it just, it just shows that we live in a more and more secular country. And that's fine. So actually, our country is not religious, but rather we live in what I'm going to call rebellion. So rebellion is who cares about God? Who cares what God wants to say? Who cares what the Bible has to say? Not, not a problem. So what you, what I think what we get in church sometimes and in Christianity is this pendulum swing completely other way to what I'm going to call religion. Uh, And religion is God wants me to behave like this. And if I don't behave like this, God's going to hate me. And so I shouldn't, um, I shouldn't send nudes. I shouldn't lie. I shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't because otherwise God is going to destroy. He's going to punish me. Um, And so when that does happen, and this happened all, I mean, goodness gracious, I was, a, I was a youth worker for, you know, 16 years, a lay youth worker. You know, I've been a young adults leader for a few years now. And it's like, when you have sex with that person, when you've watched that video, you're not meant to, when you've sent that comment, uh, when you've put out that tweet, when you've said, you know, when you've done, when you've got super drunk the night before and you lead in worship the next day, just consumed all right you know you're absolutely racked with with guilt and so people come and they'll be like i did it again i did it again god hates me god hates me god hates me and that's religion working it, it it's way into your psyche and here's why the gospel says you are a sinner you're a worse sinner than you ever thought possible but God is a more gracious savior than you ever thought imaginable that he loves you more than you ever thought. And so religion says you did this. God hates you. Rebellion says you did this. I don't care. The gospel says you did X. I paid for it. And I'm empowering you by grace to make you love to do Y, to make you love to do the right thing. And so religion always feels guilty. The rebellious always feel apathy and don't care. 
a gospel-centered Christian realizes that they're a sinner, apologizes, and then wants to know, wants to run to God in order to help, help me, Father, what is it that you're trying to help me to, how are you trying to transform my life? And so put, Matt Chandler puts it really simply, if you're religious, when you sin, you run away from God. If you're a gospel-centered person, when, you're, when you sin, you run to God. Very, very simple. I love that. That's, uh, yeah, really, really well put, that whole thing. And um, I guess off the back of that, you already referenced earlier the book um, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And um, I think that's also a really good book on that kind of, to follow up on those kind of things, isn't it? And actually getting our perspective right on how things are um, and stop us kind of defaulting into that. Because it's very easy, I think, to just default into those kind yeah. of mindsets. Um, I don't know why, maybe because it's easy or maybe it's because of stuff that happened when, you know, from our past, the way other people might have presented certain things to us. I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, that's really healthy. Um, so... Um, so moving on, you say, oh yes. So in one of the earlier chapters, you talk about authentic community, which is um, a great topic. And you talk about um, walking in the light and you say walking in the light literally means putting our mess on show for others to see. Um, so could you explain this a little bit more? Like how do we do this? Um, like who do we do it to? Does it mean posting our mess ups on Instagram or... What's the situation there? <laughs> I think there's loads of people doing that. Flipping it. The amount of disclosures I see online, I'm like, you would never say that like to someone in person. But for some reason, when you put things into the ether, it's like, oh, I'm being authentic. Yeah, man. Um, I think we, uh, Pete Scazzaro, he is the leader of a uh, kind of a spiritual movement called Emotionally Healthy discipleship i don't know if you ever read the book you ever have you heard of it yes i was i was gifted the book um emotionally healthy spirituality last year and and i found it really helpful actually because i read it at a really timely moment in my life but yeah go on yeah exactly so and so his big idea is, is essentially around coming to grips that you have feelings feet and linking your feelings to your spirituality we, I see this in Psalms all the time. Like this morning, I've been in Psalms 13. And Psalm 13 starts with, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And David, it's a Psalm of David, and, and it, it, essentially he's saying, I, I feel abandoned by God. My big question is, who in your life knows that you feel that way? So I see a lot of Christians meet a lot of Christians all the time, this, that, and the other. And they have, you know, great, you know, they, they seem to have everything in, in order. And then something will happen and then they, some, they disappear. When they finally come back into community, whatever you are, oh, yeah, and I was going through a really hard time or I was depressed or I did X, I did Y. And I always ask the question, like, who, who are your people? Who did you tell this to? And I'm so shocked by the amount of people that don't have someone that they can share the real deep parts of their life with. 
And I'm not talking about just, oh, yeah, like um, I did this thing, whether it be anger, jealousy, whatever, this, that. But how are you really feeling and who are you sharing that with uh, it will save your life. That's why I mean by authentic community. I don't mean just blast it on Instagram and get catharsis from putting your feelings into the ether. That's a great start, but I think that's all. I think you're you're asking for something that the wider online network isn't going to give. And what you're looking for when you do that, you're looking for intimacy, looking for someone to say to you, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I hope you're okay. And I'm going to stand with you throughout whatever you're going through. Um, the two big barriers to that are number one, the thing, the feeling that you've got to have everything in order that this notion that I've got to present my strongest self, I've got to present the Instagram version of myself. And we do Christians, we do this really, really well. Like you go to church on a Sunday when we could meet in person, it's like, yeah, I'm doing great. Who is the people that you say you're not doing great with? Who are those people? And are they in your life consistently? And in and invariably, do they also tell you how they're really doing? Because if you don't have that, I just don't see how prayer works, how calling on God works in a really hard place. I don't see how the Psalms and the emotions seen in the Psalms are relevant in your life if you never share them with anybody else. Who are you going to talk to when you have a miscarriage, when you lose your job, when you get COVID and you nearly die, when you know, grandma passes away when, you know, X, Y, and Z. If you don't have someone to do that with, that's why our world feels so lonely. Yeah. And I think that actually almost comes back to our last question. We were talking about the religion thing is that actually, if you feel like you need to look all right and look like everything's together, and then you put a mask over those problems then you're not going to share them. And then things are just going to get worse oh. and worse and worse until eventually yep. whatever it is explodes because there is something, um, there is something healing, isn't there? And, and mm-hmm. in sharing um, and, and have, being able to have those conversations. So Christianity isn't about looking like you've got it all together and following X, Y, and Z to kind of please people because that's just going to end in, in disaster. And often I think, I don't know, you've probably seen it, in your life that, that does happen actually um so yeah it's, it can be a real like salvation really to have present salvation to have people around you with whom you can share um no that's cool i, th- I think that's really good so at a given point you talk about um well harry potter fans actually um and you talk about how they're kind of you know one when you meet one because they tend to start talking about Harry Potter. Um, and um, I, I probably shouldn't have said it like that because I quite like Harry Potter myself, actually, to be fair. Um, but nonetheless, um, you, you use that in the context of explaining this turning devotion to evangelism. Like if people love something, they go on about it. It's the same with parents, isn't it, of newborns? They're, they're always talking about what their baby did or whatever. Or um, That's a good one. That's a very good one. Yeah, like you, you didn't ask for information about the nappies, did you? But you got it. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. so, but with Christianity, so how do we get that? Because, you know, to be honest, for me, one of my kind of frustrations is um, I would say, you know, I love my faith and I'm passionate about it and all the rest of it. and and um, But at the same time, somehow when it comes to, 
being around other people who aren't Christians or whatever, I just don't sort of burst out that kind of, hey, everyone, this is Jesus and what he's done. And like, yeah, what, what would you say about that? How do we how do we turn that devotion to evangelism? Well, I'd ask you, I'd ask you the question. What is it you think they need? Or rather, what, what, what when you when you talk about, I'm not bursting forth with Jesus on the on the tip of my tip of my lips. I will ask the question around what people in particular um, are you referring to? Are you talking about your family or your friends or that don't know Jesus or do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I guess it would be the probably the, the secular environment, so friends and colleagues or whatever people who who don't who aren't Christians. And so, okay, so I I work in a hospital, and and I was working in surgery. Now I'm working in medicine, and now I'm I'm going to be a GP. And lots of the people I work with are probably the most sacrificial, loving people kind of I've ever met. Like I work with people that regularly get spat at or, or pooed on um, and do it. Like nurses, some of the nurses I've worked with, I'm genuinely like, there's no way I could do your job. And I'm meant to be the one that's uh, living for the Lord. And so I always think, what is it the gospel gives you <clears throat> that you don't already already have? and for in the in the medical world um it isn't you become slash a more loving quote-unquote person um it's more you understand the the full epitome of of what love really is and so i often think about when it comes to working with nurses or doctors or this or that often these people go unnoticed we're not thanked very much in the nhs i know this past year has been an anomaly to that, you know, getting claps every uh, every Thursday. But actually, for the most part, we're not. Especially when you're in hospital, like you're not you're not thanked often. Uh, and I was a teacher before I was a doctor, and 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 thanks, especially from bosses and managers and this and that, go few and far, a few and far between. And so, for me to be a Christian in 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 the workplace means to make or try to make good relationships with people and thank them and, and say, hey, you're doing, get to know their names. Because you can become very faceless. You can be, you fill a gap on a rotor, you, you turn up to this, you do your job and then you go home. And to, to stand out in that environment means literally just to, to, to get to know people's names. <laughs> like to actually be like, hey, I remember the army came and served with us. One of the army people who just come in, they served us for a few weeks. They said, doctors are some of the most impersonal people I've ever met. Like they never, they never talk to you. They never consider you. They think they just write the prescription and then tell you, tell you to do it and then just go. And they can be really rude. And so it's easy for me. <laughs> All I've got to do to show gospel love in my, um, my workplace is go, Hey, good to see you, Gabriel. Like, how you doing? How's the family? This, that, and the other. And then eventually, as we get to know each other, 
Jesus comes out. Oh, you go to church. Oh, cool. I've been to church before. Like, oh, great. Well, you know, I go to this church and and I love God and I think he changed my life. And it just comes naturally when you build a rapport and a relationship with someone. And so I think one of the biggest barriers to evangelism is actually getting to know people. Um, once you get to know people, if you love Jesus, that will just that will just naturally come out. Um, I believe. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair enough, and I think you know we're all kind of different in our natural kind of characters. And as a character person, I tend to be a people pleaser, which can be a good thing and it can be a very bad thing. And it means that I sometimes don't want to say things that I know might upset people or whatever. Mm. So that can be. Um, that can be a hindrance. And I guess I also have a slight frustration that a lot of people don't ask more questions. So like a lot of people would know I'm a Christian, but never ask like, what do you think about X or what do you actually believe? Like, and I'm like, do I really have to be the one that forces the, you know, I don't want to force the topic, but at the same time, like I do want to talk about this at some point. So uh, what what uh, industry do you work in, Jason? Well, I'm a photographer, so I'm freelance, which means I have a number of different people I work with. But that can be a hindrance to building close relationships sometimes because mm -hmm. you're kind of in and out of people's lives. Um, yeah. You're not consistently day by day working on, you know, so you're not going to be the first person to know when their mother's in hospital or whatever because you're just not there all the time, um, which, yeah, that may be a hindrance. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a similar boat to you. So, I work in a place for for four months, and then I go to the next place. And so, one of the hardest thing, and and that that four months is busy. So, I'm all I was just finished geriatrics. I'm all in Jerry's for four months, and now I'm lit. I've left the nurses. I've left the ward manager of whatever. And, and one of the found, things I found really hard is, especially during COVID, where you don't see people outside the workplace because you can't, is actually just struggling to actually make normal relationships with people. Um, and so I'm in, I'm in a very similar, similar boat to you. And I think it's, it, I think for this season during COVID, we just have to put our hands up and go into personal relationships. It's just hard. Like <laughs> just to have a conversation with someone, let alone share my faith with someone um, is really, really difficult. And so I think we kind of need to say, okay, like this is just the time that this is just a season where that can't be as obvious, but then hopefully move into a season where we can start to make better relationships. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess I guess the whole COVID thing has really um, put an emphasis on where we live as well, like neighbours. Um, so so often we think about colleagues and we think about friends and we think about family, all that kind of stuff, but we don't actually think of the people who are literally living in proximity to us, which over the past year have sometimes been the only people we've really seen that much. And that's really kind of made me think a bit more about that and actually paying attention to that, which is, which is kind of a dumb thing to say, because you'd think it would be obvious when it says, love your neighbor as yourself. But, um, it's not always that obvious. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I um, It's amazing how COVID made your world, your social world shrink a lot. You know, all the, the peripheral people in my life, you know, I think about church, I think about work, I think about the football team that I play for, like all of these people 
left and I was left with, you know, as me, Claire, my fiance, you know, a very close community of friends and then a couple others, you know, we're talking literally 10, 20 people that I've done consistent uh, life with over the last year. And, you know, it's led to, it's actually made me really, really happy. I'm like, I love the close relationships I have. And as those people start to come back into my life from the exterior, it's made me realize I really love these people. Some of them are Christians. Some of the, most of my family aren't Christians, which is great. Um, it leads to some great conversations, it leads to a lot of frustrations, but some great conversations. I have a few non-Christian friends. And I have, you know, a lot of Christian friends and it, it's, it's made me really happy to reflect on what what really matters. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And off the back of that, like this is just a kind of slight side question, but when we, it kind of relates back to what we were talking about community earlier. But you say, you actually mentioned briefly uh, in the book at a given point about texting your mate John Brown when you're in a rough spot or whatever. But I'm correcting here, you live in Nottingham, right? And he's in Sidcup. So um, I also happen to have a couple of good friendships that are over very long distance. Do you think there is, though, a need to have prox- like actually good relationships within close physical proximity in this day and age? Uh, I, again, I don't think you can do life without it. That's, I think that's one of the greatest lies of this generation, which is you can have very fulfilling relationships with people that are hundreds if not thousands of miles away from you i think there's a place for them i think the fact that you can be local and global is awesome but you absolutely must be local first and global second john brown and i have been best friends for uh, 13 years now 14 years he lived in nottingham we met at uni in 2007 he lived in Nottingham till about 2014, 15, when he went to work in Sidcup. So he's been there five, six years now. We lived in the same house for several years. We are in the same halls in uni together. We've been on holiday to Asia, to America, to Europe. You know, we, we, we've spent, you know, one of the biggest criticisms my fiance has of my relationship is, if you could marry me or John, I who would it be? <laughs> Which is, she's just joking, but but it, you know, we we we're close because we lived in proximity to each other for so long. So now that we live long distance, it's calm. Like we don't see each other as often. We talk, you know, once every two weeks or whatever. But there was this regular, consistent living in close in proximity doing normal life together for so long that it now it just makes sense and now i've got different friends no i don't not friends that are as close as, as john but i have a I have a different group of friends that i have here in nottingham that i'm still very close with uh and these are people i talk to regularly um and actually because i was single when i was with john and now i'm engaged to Claire, Claire is now that one of the, you know, one of my, it, my, my, my best friend is it, is it was. She's my best friend. She's my lover. She's, she's kind of taken and gone far deeper in, in that place. But if I was single, I would still try to build that, that rapport with a group of people. I just don't know how you 
I just don't know how you live, especially on bad days, without those that set of people in your life. Yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, okay, so last kind of question on before we move on to the quick fire questions. Um, you say on page one, two, two, I do not have the capacity to love others as much as I love me. Um, which is basically, you know, because Jesus talks about loving others as much as we love ourselves. But sometimes I wonder, like, do we really actually love ourselves? Because yes, we have a tendency towards selfishness and putting our own comforts and needs first often. But at the same time, sometimes the thoughts we think are things that we would just never say to anyone, you know, um, <laughs> that we that we don't like, let alone people we like. Um, we can be very hard on ourselves. Um, what what does healthy kind of self love look like? I don't know if that totally feels like a totally off board question, but I just it's just one of the thoughts that struck me when I was reading the book. I think I love how that was phrased. What does healthy self love look like? I was like, well. Wow. Um, <laughs> you could be arrested for that if you do that in public. Uh, I'm just practicing healthy self love. Um, but, uh, <laughs> that, was, that was so funny. Um, but no, um, yeah, again, your question is really, really good. It really, it's a really good question. And so, humility, I think, is comes in. With, with understanding two two principles you can be you can be proud if you think too much of yourself and you can be proud if you think too little of yourself so let me give you an example um i'm joel i wrote abide i'm a big deal now i'm on making no uh, you know i'll make you known podcast you know, I'm selling books. I'm on Amazon. I'm a, I'm it now. Churches should be lining up to make me speak. Blah 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 blah. I'm thinking too highly of myself. You would naturally say, Joel, you've been quite prideful right now. Equally, I could say, Joel, you are just a chum, man. Like you're just, just words on a page. Like you're an idiot. You're who 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 allowed you to write such a book like who gave you permission that you could write something and people are going to read it who allowed you who cares about your experience with young people no one needs you no one wants you no one asked for you and again that's pride but in a self-loathing kind of form like i'm so terrible no one would ever love me god turns around and goes no I gave you a voice. I gave you the ability to write. I gave you the platform on which to love young people and now share that experience with the world. I gave you these gifts. Who are you to say that they cannot be used? Again, it's pride in a different form. And so healthy self-love is to learn and try to see yourself as God sees you that's true humility not think too much of yourself but neither think too little i think we i think the average 15 to 25 year old with the anxiety with the um suicide rates with the self-harm with the depression that is rising in astronomic fashion we're so guilty of self-hate self loathing and a lot of that 
is because we have pride in the in the self-loathing form. We think too little of ourselves, and I think that's just the norm. I think nor I think people very often go to sleep thinking, "Who am I? I'm nothing." People don't know the real me, so I've got to hide online. People don't love me, so I've got to present this Instagram front. Because if I if I present the real me, the, the the me that 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 is really going through something, the me that doesn't actually look as good as he or she looks online, the me that doesn't actually speak as well as she speaks online, you're, how can you feel anything but this complete self-loathing? Like, I'm not fit enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not athletic enough, I'm just going to go to sleep and end it all. And God comes in and he says, you're being prideful. Prideful because... I don't care how anyone else looks. I made you from the dust of the earth. You're my, you're the apple of my eye. I love you and I want you. And I have asked you to share the beauty that I put in you in the world. I've asked you to change the small relationships around you. I've wanted you to grow in the seed of Christ, to create and become an oak of righteousness that other people can find shelter in. So you going into your bedroom and cussing yourself out and harming yourself is a complete affront to everything I've done in you. And so that's what healthy self-love looks like. It's looking at yourself the way God looks at you instead of the way you look at yourself. And I think that is the cure to the incredible chronic loneliness, the incredible chronic mental health crisis, the incredible chronic suicidality and depression that plagues so many of my people, so many guys in their 20s and early 30s. And it's seeing that God loves us for us. Um, and that's healthy self-love, I think. Yeah. I mean, as, as again, I'm not really sure. How to, I'm not really sure I can add to that. Um, it's, yeah, it's like... How... Let, me, let me ask a question. Do you think we're more guilty of thinking too much of ourselves or thinking too little of ourselves? I think it goes in cycles. Um, now, this is an obscure reference, but there's a song by Dolly Parton called Gravity and Jesus. And she she sort of makes the point that pride takes her up and up and up until she thinks too much of herself. Then she has some kind of fall, some kind of sin or whatever, and then she goes way down, like too low. And then like Jesus kind of picks her up and goes, no, no, no. And then she goes back up and then once she's up, she then starts to go up and then this kind of stuff. And I, I kind of think that's a really interesting way of putting it because I, I feel that for myself, that's possibly true. Um, so to answer your question, yeah, I don't know. I think I think it, it may vary from person to person. And mm. I think for me, it's probably like too long in the gutter, too long in the lower type. And then, and then this, the other stuff does happen, but less frequent, even yeah. the lower stuff. Like the lower stuff can be almost daily um yeah so and i guess it's a case of awareness and then and then my follow-up would be okay so now that i'm aware that this isn't right actually that that's not okay now i need to make a change how do i take that next step 
and and there you what you've just described there is stopping and thinking when you have said to your and and that's what i'm getting at when you sit to yourself and you think to myself i feel like crap today i feel terrible about myself and then when you've thought but that's not okay because i think that's the that's the light bulb moment that I really wish people would pick up on in the book. That stopping and thinking is not this, oh, I'm just trying to force you to be abiding Jesus. It's actually just taking account of how do you feel? Why do you feel the way you feel? Is that okay? Is it okay for you to completely denigrate yourself? Of course it's not. But when you think that through, it then makes you realize, oh, okay, how does God feel about me? And do you, when you stop and think, does it, does it, when you realize you're in the gutter and you realize it's not okay, what, what's your next step after that? So, yeah, that's when it's, that's when you have to kind of start praying, I guess, because like you can't just make the change um, like (laughs) instantly, like you're aware there's a problem. And as you say, yeah, becoming aware is like the most, you know, as Jesus says, like, you can't go to the doctor if you don't know you're sick. So um, you're aware. The next thing is to go to the doctor, I guess, um, and and maybe not expect automatic results. Although there's no reason not to, but, you know, don't be disappointed if there's straight away you're not suddenly going, oh, actually, I'm, I'm fine. I'm amazing. I'm not. That's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> um, and again, so for me, I am... Um, I'll tell you a bit about my story. I went to med school when I was 19, met John Brown, 2007, come on. And uh, I was more guilty of thinking too highly of myself. So everything I touched to in my adolescent years pretty much turned to gold. So I was in the football team. I had a great group of friends. I had a little job. Money in my pocket, I passed my driving test, got straight A's. All the time, pretty much. Um, got into med school when I was 19. Didn't get in the first year, but anyway. Um, and within the first year, getting great grades. I'm on. The, I'm in the uni football team. Everybody knows me. I know everyone. I, I was like, this is what the Christian life looks like. It's all, <laughs> I used to go to bed and think like, I'm killing it right now. <laughs> people around campus you could ask anyone used to call me joel kazir a christian hero i'm not even joking like that actually happened and then i basically see you got a lot harder i was in the christian year football got a lot harder in my second year medicine got a lot harder in my second year and i basically did my the classic thing joel kazir does which i bit off two more too much for me to chew way more than I could chew and I basically failed I failed second year I got kicked out of med school for failing Uh, I left the football team and and, and kind of helped serve and see you a little bit and in third year all my friends went on to become doctors and I basically had to like leave you like leave uni after three years and I became and and I've never failed anything not not like that um, at all. And I cannot describe to you, just like Dolly Parton, it was 
catastrophically beautiful <laughs> for me because because from I went to feeling like who who am I like I'm nothing I'm terrible I'm this I'm that and in the same way my pride had been hurt I went to pride in the other direction but in my rock bottom feeling in the gutter God came and found me and I became a teacher and I found that I'm not my job I'm not Jogzilla Christian hero I'm just a normal local church youth leader young adults leader that loves teaching and I became a teacher for five years and loved it uh I then went back to medical school because I wanted to become a medical teacher but I went in with such an attitude of if this doesn't work out it's okay and so I'll never forget how I will never be more grateful for that failure than anything in my life. It, uh, to the point, like, it has changed the way I've thought about, about me, the way I thought about God. And it came through probably the worst, some of the worst, like, time in my life. And so I'm completely, I, 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 get, I get it. I get what being in the gutter feels like. But I also get that God can come and find you in your pride. Um, and it's beautiful when finally it clicks. Right, God actually loves me, even though I'm not everything I thought I was. Cool. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge thing. And I, I think there's this process of detaching ourselves from the message of culture. And you actually talk about that in your chapter on discernment in the book, um, about the subtle preachers of culture. Um, and and actually it takes a long time when you're steeped in something I think like at a subconscious level we do feel like our identity is what we do for our work it's it's who we are I am a it's not like this is what I do it's like this is who I am um, and that's problematic and it and it takes some time for us to realize that and then once we've realized it again same thing it takes some time to start undoing that and I'm trying to go through that process myself at the moment of being like you know what I do or achieve in my vocation is not my value <laughs> um and even though you know that because you've been sitting under the gospel you know in church for years you still kind of get in you still get kind of messed by the other the other message um, which is kind of crazy Ooh. world um, we live in. Um, but I also think something you said about the stock, and, and firstly, actually, thank you for sharing that because I appreciate that um, story, and I think that's really useful, and I think other people will benefit from hearing that. So thank you for right. that. Um, but the stop and think thing as well, I think, um, just made me think also about the importance of note-taking just on the side. Like um, local pastor Pete said something, had this pithy phrase which I thought was quite nice which was you know when you take notes you can turn revelation into application um and I think that's the important thing and there's that whole thing about actually taking time and again it comes back to that whole ruthless elimination of hurry thing of actually taking time aside to stop you know the kind of observe make a note reflect pause pray all of that kind of stuff and having that digestion that's going on rather than consuming something and moving on and consuming and moving on and never kind of looking at how that fits into um i mean i remember it made my devotional time a little bit more spicy when i started going on the application front when i'm like reading james and it's like don't slander 
and normally I'd be like, oh yeah, that's right. That's, that's a really good thought and move on. And then I was like, then I asked myself, where in my life do I have a problem with this? And I was like, actually, it's really easy to fall into slander. And I actually probably do this a lot and something needs to change. It was only through that stopping and asking the application question that you start to see a change um, coming in. Um, anyway. Absolutely. Sorry, go on. No, I mean, you've, you've absolutely nailed it. We... I mean, for one, if you're reading the Bible, first of all, you're amazing. <laughs> but I think when you learn to, when you start to get into rhythm actually reading the Bible, I then think the next thing you should do is learn to read it really slowly. And I, like, because don't slander in 2021 when Boris Johnson has constricted you to living like this for a year and, you know, you're on furlough and, you know, your anxiety is where it's at and, you know, <laughs> you know, money's not, don't slander is radical. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? So uh, when you read slowly, I, I read the Bible very slowly, very slowly indeed. Um, it, I was in Titus, which is three chapters uh, for a year. And just completely changed the way I looked at leadership and and what being a Christian leader meant. And so, you're you're, you're absolutely bang on. No, cool. Um, let's um, move on to the quickfire questions. What one thing do you know now that you wish you'd known as a twenty year old? What one thing? Um. Friends can become family. Cool. I thought you were going to say friends can become foe, which I'm glad you didn't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not there yet, bro. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Gospel in one minute or less. God wants to change you to change the world around you. How do you keep going through discouragement slash dark night of the soul? Oh. there's no other alternative better than Jesus. Any recommendations for books, podcasts, social media accounts or whatever to follow or read or listen to or whatever? Oh, boy. Um, okay, let me start with podcasts. Um Number one, Emotionally Healthy Leader. Number two, The Holy Post. Number three, uh, Tim Keller, Gospel in Life. Books, Henry Now and Spiritual Direction. Uh, Two, Paul Williams, Faith for Exiles. Three, um, uh, Gentle and Lonely, Dane Auckland. Uh, number four, a by Joel Kazira. Um, <laughs> um, more real, John Brown, great book. Yeah, our books kind of work side by side as well. Uh, books, podcasts, and then just some stuff on YouTube. Uh, I would highly recommend uh, you read like nice and widely. Uh, but uh, my favorite person to watch probably uh, on YouTube is a lovely. A uh, lady called Sandra Richter, uh, uh, like the Richter scale. She's an Old Testament scholar, worked at Harvard for a bit. If you just don't know your Old Testament, just Sandra Richter, seven-minute seminary 
it's um, it's amazing. It's awesome. Nice. I'll check that out. Um, yeah, and finally, um, if you could send any a tweet-sized message to the younger generation today, what would it say? Find an authentic community. Full stop. Great. Punctuation is key. Um, that's no, that's great. That's great, Joel. Well, have you got any any final thoughts or stuff you want to share before we wrap up? Um, no, my my book is an extension of of kind of everything I've ever learned through meeting thousands of young people. And for our generation, the biggest war is for your attention, and the effects of that is that you are now isolated and lonely and you breathe the oxygen of thinking your individualism is the most important thing. The gospel to you means you find authentic community and learn to share your shadow self as well as your real self. And then the Holy Spirit will come and turn you into a beautiful community that God is going to change your local world with. That's great. Well, that's a great note to end on, I think, Joel. So thank you so much for your time. Um, I appreciate it. It's been great to chat. And, um, yeah, let us know when you write To Abide, Too Furious, or the, the sequel. Or... <laughs> <laughs> to Abide, Too Furious. That's so funny. Claire, my fiance, never watched the Fast and Furious films. And I showed her, like, number one, and she was like, oh, I like this. She just likes really dumb stuff that she can zone out to. So we're now on number four in the series, and she absolutely loves it. I love, I love that she loves it. So I will write a but to abide too furious. That's, that's a great place to end. Yeah. All right. And on that bombshell, good night. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jason. Well, thank you very much for watching and listening, guys. Um, I trust you have enjoyed that. Do let us know. Leave a comment. Uh, drop us a DM. Um, hit us up on Instagram, make underscore you underscore known or whatever. So um, until next time, we look forward to seeing you then. In the meantime, if you want to catch up with Joel, you can find him on Instagram at Agonizo the Struggle, which is A-G-O-N-I-Z-O, and then the struggle, all as one word, on Instagram. So find him there. And if you want to get a copy of the book, Abide, you can find that on Amazon. Just uh, hit in the search bar, Abide, on the books, and it should come up. It's got quite a distinctive cover, so uh, hopefully you should be able to find that fairly easily. And then until next time, Take care.